All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. Another solo cast episode today, so I'm going to do my regular training, diet, and gear updates, and then we're going to dive into a Q&A. I'm going to talk about the cost of a DIY sheep hunt, trail cameras, biggest challenge solo hunting, and a whole lot more. So let's just dive right into it. Right out of the gate, I want to thank everybody for their support on the sheep hunt, and if you weren't aware, I released a film this week called 13 Days, A Stone's Sheep Hunting Story, um, and I'm really proud of it. There's always room for improvement, but I'm quite happy with the storytelling, with the audiovisual quality, just a lot about this film. I think, it's a, I think it's a noticeable improvement from my last one, and that's all I'm really ever trying to do when I make these films, is I just want each one to be a little bit better than the, pat, the last. So if you haven't checked it out yet, it's on my YouTube channel. It's doing really well. I'm not a giant YouTube channel. I don't get hundreds of thousands of views, but it's up at almost 1,500 views already, and that's a pretty big deal for me, considering it's only been up for a couple days. And I wanted to take a moment and give some thanks to everybody over at the Hunting BC forum, because sometimes they take a lot of slack. Like, people will say there's a lot of negativity over there, there's a lot of trolls, and that when people ask for help, they kind of get shit on. And I'm not going to say there's not some of that going on, on not only that forum, but all forums. But I have to say that I get almost exclusively positive feedback and I can track where a lot of my views come from and listens to my podcast. And everyone on the Hunting BC forum is a significant you know, part of the viewership and listenership. And so it's clear that those guys support the material. And so I just wanna, I wanna thank everybody over there and I wanna thank everybody for the positive support. And I was thinking a little bit like, why does my experience seem to differ from other people's? And I really think there's just one main reason. It boils down to knowing your role and being authentic. And I've never tried to portray myself as something or someone that I'm not. I'm not an expert hunter. I still have a lot to learn. And I try and you know, behave with humility and communicate open and honestly when I'm out there. And I think that really lands for people. And I think, and I think that's why I get the support that I get over there. And there's, I like watching experts. I'm just not them. So I, I can only bring to the table what I do bring to the table. And I think as long as we're honest about what it is we're bringing to the table, I think audiences are really receptive to that. So anyways, for anyone who has liked, commented, shared anything with the, with the, with the new film, thank you sincerely. I, I greatly appreciate it. And to everyone over at the forum, um, thank you as always for the continued support. All right, let's get right into it. So we're going to have a bit of an interesting deep dive on training today because I want to talk about my current split as I enter into this like final bulk phase before I'm going to do a show. And in order to do that, I think we need to understand some basic training principles. I've covered these before, but I think there's two good reasons why it's okay to do it again. One, some of these concepts are a little complicated and I think hearing about them two or three times in slightly different ways helps drive them home a little bit more clearly. And number two, I guarantee there's people, the new listeners now who haven't heard some of the older episodes when I used to do more kind of technical breakdowns of, of training protocols. So first of all, I'm gonna talk about two different forms of hypertrophy. That's muscle building for anybody who is unaware. 
Then I'm going to talk about my current training protocol and how those two forms of hypertrophy are satisfied or executed upon in my current training protocol. So number one is myofibrillar hypertrophy and number two is sarcoplasmic. We're going to really boil these down and say that one comes from driving muscle past the point of failure and the second one comes from forcing such an intense pump into the muscle that the sarcoplasm or and, and the fascial tissue in the muscle is forced to expand. So those are two very different things and they don't happen necessarily from the same exercises or the same rep ranges. So let, let, let me break that down again. Okay, myofibrillar comes from forcing a muscle to do something that it has not done before. You are introducing a novel stimuli. The simplest way to understand this is progressive overload. There are other ways that we could get into it, but I wanna keep things pretty clear. Progressive overload states that every time you do a similar exercise, you should be progressing in some way, shape, or form. This could be adding one more rep than you did last week. This could be adding five more pounds to the same number of reps you did last week. This could be adding a forced negative to the same number of reps that you did last week. The more advanced you get, the smaller the changes get, and the more finely you need to track and record your progress to understand where you can make these small progressions. But the theory states that by forcing a novel stimuli onto a muscle, get into like overcompensation theory. So this is why you have to break down muscle to build it back up. So by going past the point of failure and by forcing your muscle um, into some place where it's never gone before, if we were going to you know, personify this or anthropomorphize it for lack of a better term, you are basically telling your muscle, you're not good enough. So it hears that and it goes, okay, I failed this time. So not only do I need to get strong enough to, to withstand that amount of force next time, I need to get even stronger. I'm not just gonna compensate, I'm gonna overcompensate. And I'm gonna build back not just what I lost, but even a little bit more. So that's progressive overload, also referred to as myofibular hypertrophy because it has to do with the myofascial tissue and the contractile tissue in the actual muscle itself, okay? There's hypertrophy form one. Now, hypertrophy form two is sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Now, I want you to think about your muscular tissue or your contractile tissue really being a whole bunch of little cells or little tiny balloons inside of these flexible packages or flexible tubes. Now, let's, let's, let's go with that. So we're gonna have our bicep and it's gonna be a whole bunch of tubes like, like um, fiber optic tubes laid across each other all running in the same direction. And inside all of those fiber optic tubes, 
tubes. There's all kinds of tiny little balloons. And they're a certain size right now. Now, if we force blood into those cells and into the balloons and into the tubes, and we force them to get bigger, they're gonna expand and they're gonna be able to hold more sarcoplasm and more tissue and more blood moving forward. So it still kind of operates on the same principle. We're still gonna drive it in a novel way to a place it hasn't gone before, but we're gonna use different tactics in order to do that. Because when you keep things in a lower rep range, like six to 12, you definitely get some of that pump, but, but not as much as you can otherwise. So if, if, if progressive overload and adding one more rep was the first way that we're gonna address hypertrophy, the second one is gonna be more pump-focused workouts. And we're gonna do things like cluster sets, drop sets, rest-pause sets, really high rep ranges, you know, bicep curls for 30 or, you know, run the rack on dumbbell laterals. And I'll get into all this when I do my training protocol, but just recognize that's the second form of hypertrophy. And this is why people have argued about this for years. Are you like, a, you know, a Dorian Yates guy who literally works out for 45 minutes and does six working sets? Or are you a Jay Cutler guy who does 40 working sets and does 12 to 16 reps for everything under the sun and does four to six sets per exercise. Both those guys are monsters. They got there completely different ways. One, using primarily myofibrillar hypertrophy and one, using primarily sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Here's another reason why I think it's important to understand these. Each of those individuals had ideal genetics for one particular form. Obviously, they were the best in the world during their time, and they used primarily only one method. So, I think the more that you can understand about these, these forms of hypertrophy and how muscle is built, the more clearly and the more successfully you can build your own program that's going to play into your particular genetic preferences in a, in a, in a more optimal fashion. But, but people have been having this argument for years and the answer is there's no one winner. Both those forms are equally successful and need to be employed equally, and maybe not necessarily equally, but they both need to be addressed within your training protocol. So maybe you're like 70-30, maybe you're 50-50, maybe you're 30-70, I mean, who knows? I have a pretty good idea now because I've been doing this for a lot of years. I can tell what works. I can tell when I'm building muscle. I can tell when I'm not. So with all that in mind, let's actually dive into my current training protocol. So I am on a four-day split. I do two days on, one day off in an ideal circumstance. Doesn't always happen. For instance, this week, went away on holidays, so I had to train three days in a row. This is new for me, this two days on, one day off. I'm actually trying to lift less because I follow a lot of guys who say the ideal growth they got when bulking was at four days a week. I've always found that difficult because I feel like it's not enough, but I think that's my ego. And so I want to try, you know, it's not quite four days a week, but it's kind of close. So I want to try this two days on one day off approach. So the, the days of the split are back and kind of rear shoulder day, chest, 
and front shoulder day, leg day, and arm day. Now, as I progress, I may switch that up a bit. I may split that up into two leg days um, and put triceps on one and biceps on another. Also, depending on how the rehab goes for my shoulder, I may let shoulder, shoulders have their own day. However, because I'm still, one shoulder is still tweaked, I, there's, I just can't do that much shoulder work or it starts acting up on me. So I've kind of spread it out over two different days and it seems to still be working. My shoulders aren't as quite a big, as big as they were, but it is what it is. So for each day, I'm going to have 10 working sets per day. So for chest, for example, I'm going to do a flat press of some kind, most likely on a machine. Then I'm going to do an incline press. Then I'm going to do a shoulder press. Then I'm going to do a decline press. And then I'm going to do some type of machine fly. Five exercises. I will take as many warm-up sets with each of those exercises as I need until I'm at the point where I know I'm going to do my top set. So for example... Right now, my flat press machine loaded weight is three plates and a 10 on each side for eight reps. That's what I did last week. So I know when I go in there this week, I have to do nine reps. I have to do nine reps like it's a fucking war. Like there is no room for failure. Like everything about that day is focused on that ninth rep for that set. And it's the same way I approach each of the following top sets. But everything about this workout is structured for me to get that one extra rep this week. So I might take three, I might take five warm-up sets. Then once I'm feeling good, and I'll probably, I'll like, I'll start out with six to eight reps, and then I'll put on another plate, and I'll drop down to four to six reps, and then I'll put on a half a plate, and I'll drop down to two to three reps, and then I'll put on the other plate, and I'll drop down to two reps, and then it's like, okay, now I'm good. These are priming sets. These are not meant to exhaust you in any way, shape, or form. They are meant to warm you up and prime the muscle for what's about to come. Then I put on the three plates and 10 pound. Then I go to war and I get those nine reps no matter what. Now, if I do fail, that gets noted and it's a deeper podcast into what happens then, but if you're continually failing, like if you get to the point where you're stalling out, you might need to take a deload week. You might need to switch up exercises for a while. Like obviously you cannot infinitely progress. You will eventually hit some kind of wall, but there's ways to squeeze more out of yourself than you would initially think. So I do that top set. I get my nine reps and then I do a back off set. And I'll probably bring it down to two and a half plates and crank out 12 to 15 reps. I will just go to failure. I do record that and I do try to beat it, but it's not as important as the top set because the top set is the true marker of the increase in performance or the, or the true metric you're tracking for the progressive overload. So if I'm doing five exercises, I need five top sets and I need to beat that, those numbers five times. So I do my first exercise like that, and basically my first three exercises, that's exactly what I'm going to be doing. Top set, beat the logbook, back off set, rinse and repeat. 
When I get to my last two exercises, this is when I start to move into the sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. This is when the reps are gonna go up a little bit. The intensity does not go down, but the rep structure of the sets do. So this is where I might do five or six sets at 12 reps a piece to like really get that blood. I'm not so concerned about how much weight I can push here. With these last two exercises, I'm really concerned with feeling the muscle, that true mind-muscle connection that Bill Pearl talks about. He's one of the godfathers of, of bodybuilding and he wrote this um, amazing book called um, Keys to the Inner Universe. And he talks about the mind-muscle connection. And these last two exercises, I'm trying to force as much blood in there as possible. I'm trying to stay as focused as possible. I'm trying to get that like painful burn pump. Like that's that just that brutal, brutal burn. So I will probably, and I still stick to a top set and a back off set, but the definitions are different. Now, instead of a straight set for my top set, I might do a cluster set. So again, let's say I'm doing the pec fly on the machine 250 pounds, and I know I can get 280 pounds for 12 reps. I might do a cluster set of five by five with 250. So I'm not gonna quite hit failure with the first one, but I would do five reps, break for 15 seconds. Five reps, break for 15 seconds. And the more of these sets I do, the harder and harder it gets because I'm not allowing myself to recover. And by the end, it's, you feel like your chest is gonna get ripped off your rib cage. Like it's just, it's insane. So a cluster set, just for clarification, you would do sub-maximal weight, so a little bit less than the heaviest that you could do. And you pick a rep range where you wouldn't quite fail on the first two or three sets, but by set four and five, you're, you might only be getting four reps per or just squeezing out that last one. Or you might do a drop set where you like rep out 12 at 250, drop it to 220, rep out 12 more, drop it to 190, rep out 12 more um, with no breaks in between. Or you could do a rest pause set or you could run the rack. I'm not gonna, these are all intensifiers that are gonna aid in the kind of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy that we've been discussing. So essentially, I'm not gonna get into the exact exercises, but chest day, five exercises, five top sets, five back off sets. First three exercises are progressive overload. Last two exercises are really focused on that sarcoplasmic, or just think of it as the pump. They're the, but I don't want you to think they're like fluffy, because that's what people say, I'm gonna go in and get a pump today. And you get this idea of like this, fucking idiot who's just going in and throwing around, you know, in his, in his stringer, throwing around some weights, just trying to get pumped up. When I say pump sets, you're still feeling like you're gonna die, but the goal is not an increase in strength or an increase in number of reps, and it's an increase in the amount of plasma that you are forcing into your muscles. Okay, that went on longer than I expected. Maybe it was clear, maybe it wasn't, as usual, if you want more clarification or if you want me to spend more time on this in a future episode, let me know. Also, if you think that's boring as shit and you don't want me to talk about it anymore, you let me know that too. Let's get into diet. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on diet today because I already spent too much time on training. I'm going to be completely honest. It has not been great. It hasn't been terrible, but it hasn't been great. I've got room for improvement. The one pat on the back I'm going to give myself is that I've still been getting enough calories in. I know I'm bulking right now. So if I'm not gonna be eating the cleanest of foods, 
the least I can do is get enough calories in to still be in a caloric excess so that I, I, I have the energy I need in order to build new tissue. The issue is with eating like shit and having some junk food and, and, and fast food every now and then is it really does kill your appetite. Like once I get into a true bulk and I'm up like 4,500, 5,500 calories a day, you have one round of McDonald's and you're fucked. Like you, it shuts you down, man. And so that's another reason for eating clean food once you get into a deep bulk is that you really can fit more calories in. You think you get more calories with shitty food, but you actually don't. But because I'm still in the early phases of this bulk, I can kind of get away with it. And I know my body well enough to know when I'm getting enough food and I can really feel it in my, in my workouts. But I'm a big fan of the Fresh Start Monday. Whenever I get off track or I'm not being as disciplined, I normally give myself a couple day break, chill out over the weekend, and then hit it fresh on Monday. Um, that's always worked well for me in the past. So I'm in Cologne on vacation right now, spend a couple more days here, get home Friday, chill out for the weekend, train my ass off, and then Monday morning, we're going hard on the diet. And then it's gonna be all the typical stuff. It's gonna be the rice, it's gonna be the chicken, it's gonna be the grits and eggs and egg whites and all that kind of stuff. So once I get back on track, I will dive into that in more depth at some point. All right, new piece of gear. And this is more like a, uh, a set of gear that serves a purpose. So what I was gonna talk about was the new drum light from MSR, which is essentially a water bladder. It's not like a drinkable water bladder that you would put in your pack and attach a hose to. It's basically something you use for transporting large amounts of water to and from camp or in a hike or whatever. I, I bought the six liter drum light for my sheep hunt. I use this in conjunction with a Nalgene and a Hydroforce water bladder that I drink from and a SteriPen. So those four items kind of make up my water purification and water transportation system. I'll get into the rest of those items at a later date, but I just wanted to touch on the drum light for now that I was extremely impressed. I wasn't a big fan of the initial dromedary line. They were like a, more like a, like a ripstop nylon type material and uh, the lid never quite went on right in mine and it would kind of dribble sometimes and it was a little bit heavy and lots of people liked them but it never really worked. Maybe I just had a bad one but it didn't really gel with me. But the new line, the Dromlite line, they don't go up as high. I used to have a 10 liter Dromedary and they only go up to six liters in the Dromlite line. Um, but super impressed with it. It really held its own on the sheep hunt. At first you think it's maybe like a little stretchy and like, do you trust this thing? Is it gonna pop in your backpack? Um, but we beat the hell out of them. Both me and Spence had a six liter and we had them strapped to the outside of our bags at times. We had them squished in our bags at times. We had them full, we had them half full and it really held up. So super impressed, definitely give the stamp of approval to the MSR drum light. All right, let's dive into the Q&A. First out of the gate, cost of a sheep hunt. So I'm gonna qualify this because there's a lot of different sheep hunts. So let's start at the top and work our way down. If you wanna go on a fully guided stone sheep hunt in British Columbia, you are looking at between 60 and $80,000. And that's, that's everything, man. You show up, they're gonna take care of everything. They're gonna feed you, they're gonna take you to some sheep, hopefully, 
They're going to skin it out. They're going to process it. Like everything is going to, it's the white glove service, 60 to 80 grand. Now, if you want a cheaper sheep hunt, you can go up on a guided doll sheep hunt in Alaska for as little as twelve dollars to $15,000. Um, still guided, still get treated really well. It's just that dolls occupy a greater geographical region than stones. So there's more supply. So basic economics 101, supply and demand, with a greater supply and an equal demand, the the price is lower. And in fact, I would argue there's probably, to some degree, a greater demand for stones because anybody can kind of go get a doll with enough time and a little bit of money. Anybody looking to finish a slam of any kind has to get a stones. And the obviously, you have to get a doll as well. But the because the access and the supply of stones is so much less, I would argue that the demand is, is even escalated to a certain degree. After that, now we get into basic DIY. Now, DIY could be outfitted or it could be non-outfitted. Outfitted can also take a variety of forms. Could range from just getting dropped off in a plane and getting picked up by that plane 10 days later to being ferried around by horses. And if you're not seeing sheep, they're coming to pick you up, they're bumping you, a little more hands-on. And the costs are gonna vary to that. Typically, horses are actually more expensive than planes. Not by much, but to a certain degree. Like, you know, per person, a 10-day outfitted hunt on horses is going to be in the neighborhood of three to $5,000 per person, depending on how far in you're going, who's taking you, what part of the province you're in. Whereas a plane... You could, you know, for something that you could have three guys in, might be six grand round trip, so two grand a piece versus the three to four grand for the horse. Um, and then finally, you could just walk in, no problem. There's lots of places that you can just walk in off the highway, and it doesn't cost you anything other than a little bit of boot leather. So that being said, let's shelve the. We're, we're only going to talk about DIY. And we will address outfitted because that's still a form of DIY in, in my opinion, especially when it comes to sheep. You need a little bit of help to get back to some of these areas. So let's talk about gear first. Now to put things in perspective, I went back into my spreadsheet and I added up how much money I worth of gear I had with me on my sheep hunt and it was just over $30,000. Yeah, I know. Let that sink in for a minute. Now... I'm not saying you got to spend 30 grand to go do a sheep hunt. That is the furthest thing from the truth. I had over $15,000 worth of camera gear. My camera body alone is worth 10 grand. That's not counting lenses, extra batteries, tripods, none of that shit. So 15 grand of that is camera gear and another 10 grand of that was optics. My binos and spotter alone put together is worth 10 grand. So if we take that 25 grand and knock it off the 30 grand, you're at about five grand brand new. And I'll be honest with you, if you wanna take nice shit hunting and you wanna be relatively, you wanna be as comfortable as is reasonable so that you can keep your mind on the task at hand, you're probably looking at about five grand. You know, boots, backpack, tent, camo. By the time you add all that up, you don't have to get it all the first year. You could use some cheap shit for some of it and slowly accumulate it over time. 
But if you have absolutely nothing now and you're looking at going and doing a sheep hunt, probably five grand is a good place to start. Um, that would get you into the field in a pretty in pretty good shape. Food, I'd say budget 50 bucks a day. 50 bucks a day is a nice healthy food budget. You're gonna be able to take good food with you, high quality food and enough calories. Slight plug here, if you need help planning your food, go to mindfulhunter.com slash tools and download the free backcountry nutrition guide, planning guide that I posted there. So let's, let's talk about my actual hunt that I just went on and add all this stuff up. So let's say the gear was five grand, but once you got that, you're, you're gonna own it forever. So you don't really need to factor that into the cost per hunt. Food, 50 bucks a day, 13 days, 650 bucks. We had the fuel in the truck to get up there. 300 bucks round trip, three dudes, 100 bucks a piece. So now we're up to 750. Tags. Technically, you only need a sheep tag. Now, I buy all the tags because you never know what you're gonna see and I also view it as like kind of a donation. It's my way to give money um, to, the, to the programs that they use tag money to support. But if you only buy a sheep tag, it's gonna be 60 bucks. Now, we took a flight and depending on who you take, it's gonna be between like three grand and five grand to go where we, where we did. So let's just say three grand, three guys, thousand bucks a piece. So essentially, if you own your own gear and you go DIY with a plain outfitter, for a couple of guys, I think two grand is reasonable for a sheep hunt if you already own your gear. If you wanna walk in, you could keep that to a thousand bucks. Now obviously there's a lot of other variables in there and there's a lot of other things that we could discuss, but rough numbers, white glove, stones hunt, NBC, 60 to 80 grand. Cheapest, realistic sheep hunt you're gonna get in North America, 12 to 15 grand. Outfitted hunt with a plane, somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three grand, depending on where you're going. If you wanted to spice that up and get us some cool areas with horses, I'd budget more in like the four to five grand kind of territory. So there you go. Brief rundown of what it costs to go sheep hunting. All right, trail cameras, my experience with them and what I think about them. Um, I have had some success with trail cameras, specifically related to blacktail. I've never really had a trail camera help me kill anything other than blacktail, and I would say they helped me kill things twice. My first real solo backcountry blacktail, and then another one up in Squamish. Both times, I picked areas. I probably spent 10 to 12 individual days, kind of pre-season and early season, going in, finding signs, setting up cameras, taking out salt, doing this kind of stuff. And there's been some new additions to the actual trail camera regulations. So take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt because I haven't messed around with trail cameras in a few years. So before you do anything with trail cameras and, and especially during the season, go check the new regulations because they did make some updates last year. But I would move them around, figure them out, I'd get some pictures. And all, both times, all it really did was A, help establish confidence that I was in an area that held deer. If you haven't had hunted blacktail, 
these yahoos who complain on YouTube that, oh, we're only seeing a couple of animals per day. Fuck, man, go hunt some blacktail. I've literally spent 20, 25, 30 days per hunting season and seen one to two deer that entire time. They're hyper nocturnal. They live in super dark, super steep, super shitty timber, in the coast, super wet. It's shit. And so you don't even know, like, are there even deer here? I don't know. You see light sign, but it's like, it's hard to tell, man. And so having those nighttime pictures saying like, okay, there's bucks here. That's all I need to stay motivated. I know there's deer here. I just got to keep coming back until I find one. So number one, that's what they did. Number two, they did help me narrow down areas of interest. Like I would see some rubbed trees. I would set up a cam. There would be nothing. And then I'd go to another area. I'd see a different kind of sign. I'd set up some cams and I'd start getting some regular action. So it wasn't like I had a, I ever had a target buck or I ever saw one buck coming to the same thing at the same time every, it was never anything like that. It was like, oh, this kind of general region of the mountain seems to have more activity than the other regions of the mountain. So when I come in still hunting, I'm gonna focus more of my energy on here and get through that other ground as quickly as I can so that I can focus on the stuff that has a higher likelihood of holding bucks. And then both times with these cameras, that those were the general areas where I did shoot my deer. Um, but again, the deer, both the times the deer I shot were deers I had never seen on camera before, but they were in the areas where I had seen more deer. And like, listen, man, they've done stuff now where they've, they've shut down all trail camera use in, in Arizona. I think that might be a little hardcore. I'm not sure where I fall on the issue. I like fair chase. And for a normal guy like me who owns three cameras and sets them up for a few months of the year to get a rough idea where the animals are, I have zero ethical uh, issues with that. But when you look at what some of the outfitters are doing, running hundreds of trail cameras, checking them daily, naming all the animals, disturbing regular behavioral patterns because of how often they're going in and checking. You have multiple cameras set up on the same watering holes. Like then I do agree that like this is getting a bit much. This is not what my version of hunting looks like. However, I'm not really one to tell those guys that they can't do that either. So I would like to think that we could all be reasonable, mature adults and use the tools at our disposal in reasonable, mature ways. And so I'm just going to leave it at that. Because if everybody did that, I see no problem with trail cameras. All right. This is for my buddy Jay, aka Bird Grabber on Instagram. And he wanted me to talk about some vitamins. So I'm going to give you two categories. I'm going to give you the Natty Vitamin Stack and then I'm gonna give you the PED vitamin stack because they're two completely different stacks and vitamins. So first, let's hit up the natty stack. So if you're just a regular dude, work out a few times a week, you know, you're generally healthy, you don't have any particular heart or cardiovascular issues, these are the basic vitamins that I would have in my stack. A solid multivitamin. 
and, and, and the more expensive, the better. And I would look for one in gel caps. The reason being some of the cheaper vitamins, they overcompress them to such a degree that you actually can't break them down. And if you want an example of this, you could actually take a vitamin and set it in something like apple cider vinegar, which should break a vitamin down similar to the stomach acid and the digestive enzymes that are in your gut. And you can watch it not break the vitamin down. So I prefer gel caps for all of my vitamins. There are some decent press tabs. So I'm not gonna say like a blanket statement, all press tabs are shit, but as a general rule, buy higher quality vitamins, vitamins and buy them in gel cap format. So I like HD Muscle Multivitamin. They're Canadian. Dorian is a super smart guy, friends with some of those guys, and they just make a super quality product. So number one, multivitamin. Number two, fish oil or a concentrated omega-3 supplement. Because of our traditional diet, we do not need to supplement omega-6 or omega-9. So any of those like omega-3, 6, 9 capsules you see, fuck them all. You want fish oil or you want omega-3. You can get, you can use krill oil, which is just really fish oil. Um, it's escaping me right now. There's a couple other acceptable omega-3 supplements. What you really want to look at is how much DHA and EPA there is in like per capsule. And it should be like a couple hundred milligrams of each. Normally there's a ratio like two to three, like 200 grams, milligrams of EPA and 300 grams of DHA. But a lot of the cheaper, shittier fish oil will be like 80 to 120 or 40 to 100. And it's like, that's garbage. You want at least triple digits of each of those. And again, buy good quality fish oil. You won't get the fish burps. I've just switched over to Nutrisy. It's a liquid. You get it flavored. It comes like lemon or orange. Um, it tastes really good. Um, it's not, I mean, it's oil, but it's not like drinking cod liver oil or some shit. It goes down super smooth, um, but that's number two. And if I, if I had to stop there, if you said, listen, I'm on a budget, multivitamin, fish oil. Those are your two heavy hitters. The next two are somewhat optional. And the first one would be a turmeric slash curcumin supplement. And you want something that has upwards of, of 95% curcuminoids. This is the actual bioavailable component of curcumin. Again, the more expensive supplements will have higher, more bioavailable formats of the actual vitamins and minerals you're trying to get. This is really gonna help with inflammation. Um, I take at least two caps of this a day, highly recommend it. And then finally, to round out your kind of basic natty stack, vitamin D. And somewhere in the neighborhood of like 4,000 to 10,000 IUs a day, which is not that much. Vitamin D is super cheap. That would be like 75 cents worth of vitamin D, vitamin D a day. Um, it's really, really cheap. So quick recap. The four vitamins in your natty stack are a, a multivitamin, a fish oil, a turmeric slash curcumin, and a vitamin D. Now, I'm actually thinking about doing a whole episode on TRT and PEDs. So let me know if that's something that interests you. Um, and I'll dive a whole lot deeper into this topic. But I did want to say, if there's any guys out there on TRT, whether it's prescribed or not, or guys doing like full-blown cycles... 
This is the way you should be thinking about your, your vitamins and, and minerals. This is what's gonna keep you as healthy as you possibly can be while potentially introducing harmful levels of, of certain um, enhancing supplements into your body. It's just, a it's just a fact of the matter. So you wanna think about your heart, your liver, your lipids, your kidney, and your blood pressure. And let's go through those one at a time. So for your heart, you wanna have something like a coenzyme Q10, also called ubiquinol. Not that expensive, it will help with heart health. Another combo supplement that you can introduce is a vitamin K2, D3. So this is two vitamins, K2 and D3. And you normally buy these together. And so again, I recommended vitamin D in the Natty stack. If you're doing the full stack, you don't need to put it in there twice. Just use the, the, the paired K2 D3 supplement. For our liver, there's really two main supplements that matter. NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, N-A-C, and Tudka, which is like it's actually like bare bile or something like that. I can't remember the full word for it, but you wanna take those two supplements, probably something in the neighborhood of like 1,000 milligrams of NAC and 250 to 500 milligrams of Tudka per day, depending on what kind of stack you're running. So lipids, this is your cholesterol, your HDL, your LDL, your triglycerides. The supplement you wanna to take to manage this is called citrus bergamot. C-I-T-R-U-S, bergamot, B-E-R-G-A-M-O-T. You can buy all this shit on Amazon as well. And you wanna take probably 500 milligrams a day of that. Up next for kidney health, astralagus, A-S-T-R-A-L-A-G-U-S. Again, you can find this on, on Amazon. And if you do have high blood pressure, and you should be, if you are running you know, PEDs, you should be taking your blood pressure, if not daily, at least a couple times a week. And if it's getting a bit high, cardotone can help bring that down for you. And the final thing I would, I would add in is zinc. Um, it's just, it's a general nice all-purpose mineral. It's gonna help you sleep a little bit letter, better. For you dudes, it's actually gonna give you bigger loads, um, which may be something your old lady's into, might not. I'm not here to judge, but it can't hurt, right? All right, up next, biggest challenge when hunting solo. This is pretty simple. Two things. One, staying disciplined. When there's another guy in camp, and this really was apparent to me on my sheep hunt lately with, with Spencer. When there's another guy in camp, you just don't want, there's just that little piece of you is like, nah, I don't want to look like a dog fucker. So like maybe I wanted to go lay down in my tent, but like, ah, he's glassing. I should probably glass for another half an hour. And it was like, it's not like I'm a lazy guy, but it would just drive you that little bit of extra 10%. And when you're by yourself, no one's there but you. So no one is gonna hold you to account but yourself. And I'm not saying I can't do that, I do do that. But it's a challenge. You have to be constantly vigilant and stay on top of yourself. And you can kind of rely on your partner for that a little bit when you're partner hunting because he's there and you don't wanna look like a lazy prick. Second, is managing your emotions and psychology. And this is, this is the one that really takes experience because when you're by yourself, <clears throat> you're getting deep into the hunt and, and you have a couple bad days in a row where maybe you get a, a string of bad weather 
or a string of bad hikes or the combination of both, you start to break down mentally and your emotions start to have more power than they should. And this is when, you know, feelings of loneliness and doubt start to creep in. And when you don't have anybody around to kind of pull you out of that, it can get pretty dark. And that is why I think a lot of people maybe try solo hunting and, and, and come out early and never go back. Because they get to that dark place, they're forced to confront some things they don't really like about themselves, and, and they just, they don't wanna feel like that anymore. And I don't blame them, it's not pleasant. I kinda get off on it because when that darkness sets to creep in, that's when I start to feel like, oh, now we're cooking. Like, this is what I came for. I wanna see how much of this shit I can take before I break. And, and, and hopefully there is no limit and I don't break. Um, sometimes there is though, but let's just, you know, cross my fingers. Um, so yeah, those are, the two, those are the two big things. Staying disciplined when you're solo and managing your emotions and your psychology when you're solo are easily the two toughest things for me. I think other people with less mountaineering and, and bushcraft, it would be more practical, tactical things, but those are my two biggies. All right, up next, how far can I get body weight training alone? So this person, for whatever reason, can only train with their body weight, and they wanna know realistically, can I even get in shape for a hunt? My first question would be like, why can you only do body weight? Is it a health thing? Is it a uh, like a like a time structure thing? Is it a is it a financial thing? Because I don't see like pick up some rocks, man. Like fill a backpack full of sandbags. Like there's a ton of ways with really low, you know, financial implications that you could be using weight to help your training. But I, maybe there are legitimate reasons why this guy can't use weight. Maybe he's recovering from an injury. I have no idea. But let's assume that it's just non-negotiable and you can't use weight. Can I still get ready for a hunt? 100% yes. Are you gonna be as efficient and is it gonna happen as fast? No. But can you do it? Unequivocally, yes. Here's the thing about training. You are trying to force your body, and we are. This is, this is a really nice segue from our earlier conversation about the two types of hypertrophy. Even when it's endurance training, in order for you to get better, you still wanna, wanna take advantage of that overcompensation theory. You still wanna force your body to a place it's never been before so that it's forced to repair and overcompensate and get you to a new level of performance. And there's all kinds of ways that we can do this. So all I would say to you is that you have to find ways to make your training as hard as possible without the addition of weights. Let's talk about some examples. Is there stairs? Can you run stairs till you feel like you're gonna puke and then run some more stairs? That's gonna help. Can you go on a hike and every, set a timer on your watch and every three minutes, you do 15 push-ups and 15 squats. Hike for three more minutes. 15 push-ups, 15 squats. Hike for three more minutes. Um, is, there, is there areas 
of the hike that are particularly challenging that are uphill? And could you like wind sprint these? So go up the steep part and go back down. Go up the steep part, go back down. And let's say you do like three to five lap circuits of that before doing the rest of, of the trail. I think running, I know Adam Foss is a big runner. I know a few guys um, who are really big runners. My buddy, Adam Yonke, that's, he got into that before he even got into backcountry hunting. He's, he was running ultra marathons and shit. Look at Cam Haynes, man. It, I'm not gonna say it's as directly applicable to hunting as backpack cardio is, but it's a pretty damn close second. So listen, I could go on all day, but this is, this is how you need to wrap your head around this. You're just trying to improve your, your endurance and your cardiovascular performance. So take whatever it is you can do and just keep making it progressively harder and harder and harder and your body will have no choice but to adapt and become better and better and better. Okay, Kelvin Active Jacket versus Kelvin Active Hoodie. So for those of you who listen to much of my content, you will know that the Kelvin Active Jacket is one of my favorite pieces of gear. I think it's probably the single most underrated piece of clothing on the market. It is basically a thin, lightweight, quasi soft shell, but not soft shell at all, but that's the closest thing I can think to describe it. It's a jacket that's like a cross between a soft shell and a fleece that has a small amount of synthetic insulation in it. So it's not a puffy, it's not a fleece, and it's not a soft shell, but it has elements of all three. And it is outstanding as a secondary insulation layer that can be worn while seated and glassing or can be worn while hiking and keeps you particularly warm when wet when compared with other insulation-based layers. Now, the Kelvin Active hoodie is built out of the same stuff, but it's a pullover and the sleeves only go to your elbows and it has a hoodie. So here's what I'm gonna say. I think the jacket is a more versatile piece of gear, personally, because I'm normally wearing something with a hood. And nowadays, everything comes with a hood and I don't need three hoods. So I like that the Kelvin Active jacket doesn't have a hood. I tend to wear the core lightweight hoodie so I can always put that hood along with my ball cap or toque. And when it's really cold, I'm wearing a puffy jacket over the Kelvin Active jacket. So now I've got the hood that the, that the puffy jacket has. So I don't need the hood. It saves weight. It saves bulk. It's, it, it's just a nice, it's nice not to have it. And because it's a full jacket, you can wear it in a variety of circumstances. However, that Kelvin Active hoodie, I could see some very you know, interesting use cases um, on some hunts, depending on if they were really wet hunts or if they were really hot hunts that were gonna have cold times, then having no bottom sleeves and even moving to something like the Kelvin Active vest. Here's the thing. If I was just gonna buy two pieces, I'd buy the Kelvin Active jacket and I'd buy the Kelvin vest because whatever I want the hoodie to do, I think the vest could do better. Because the idea with the vest or the hoodie is that you're saying, I don't need sleeves, I don't need full sleeves, so I wanna save some weight and I wanna save some bulk in my layering system so that my arms are more mobile 
and not as encumbered by fabric. And so I would probably opt for the vest. But the underlying structure of the active series is so powerful in my opinion that I don't really give a shit which one you buy. I would, I would just have at her. But if you put a gun to my head, first I'm buying the jacket, then I'm buying the vest, then I'm buying the hoodie. All right, cougar hunt without dogs. <laughs> this is like, here's the only, my only response to that is pure luck. The only people I have ever heard personally of killing cougars without dogs, they were hunting something else and they just happened to cross a cougar. I've never, I don't know anybody who hunts them without dogs on purpose successfully any other way. So I, maybe they do. I'd love to hear from you. I'm trying to hook up a cougar hunt this year. I have a couple goals for this winter. One, I'd like to do maybe some wolf trapping with somebody. And number two, I'd like to do some cougar hunting with dogs because I've never done either and they're both really high on my list. So if you do either of those and you want a buddy for a couple days, please shoot me a message. But yeah, I've and the other thing about this, like cougar hunting by luck, I've actually heard of multiple dudes this happening to. And this is why I always have a cougar tag in my pocket. And if you live in British Columbia for the extra 20, 30, 40 bucks, whatever it is, you should always have a cougar tag in your pocket too because they're predators and we do, we're the only ones who's gonna keep their, their numbers down and I view it as our responsibility. Same as wolves. You don't need a tag for a wolf in British Columbia, but if you see them, shoot them. Um, yeah, that's all I got for you on cougars. Final question, pack weight, five day alpine mule deer hunt, late season. I am doing this exact hunt late October this year. I'm gonna say if you wanna go in with some luxury, like 50 pounds, man, with some water and rifle, I'd even go as high as 55. Uh, there's no reason you can't get it done for that. You're gonna have, you're not gonna have to scrimp on things. You can be pretty chill and lackadaisical about loading your bag. You're gonna be sub 60 pounds with water and rifle or bow, and you'll be just fine. You know, you can even bring in some extra food. You could have 1.8 pounds of food per day and still hit that target, no problem. And I don't know what your cardio is like, but a 50 pound back is a bit of a joke to hike around with. I had a 90 pound pack on the sheep hunt, and by the end of it, obviously we're, we're light a little bit of food, but even hiking out with you know 75 pounds, it felt like a, like a joke, it was great. Um, I will probably be closer to 60 simply because I'm gonna be carrying camera gear and it's an extra 10 pounds and no matter what I do, it's just always there. Now, all of that being said, you could also shave that down to 40. Like if you wanna get hyper vigilant about it, you could definitely do a five day hunt, even a late season hunt with 40 pounds in your pack. The question is, how experienced and educated are you that you know what you can live without and what you can't? And how well do you know your gear that you know the lightweight shit you're taking is gonna live up to the type of punishment that you're gonna put it through? So that's the window, it's a big window, but I would say if you wanna be super comfortable, have some amenities, really enjoy yourself and you've got decent cardio, go with a 55 pound pack. If if you're a little more hardcore and you're concerned about being faster and more agile, then ditch the comfort items and come in around 40 pounds. All right, folks, that is it for this week. 
So as usual, deeply appreciate likes, comments, subscriptions, engaging with the material in any way. If you need to get a hold of me, jay at mindfulhunter.com, DM me on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter. And as always, thanks for tuning in.